1 Samuel chapter 20, 19, ended with a little bit of the weird. But when we begin chapter 20, we get into something that's uh, unfortunately very normal, very real. We saw in chapter 19 that the Lord protected David from Saul and his soldiers through Samuel and his school of prophets, but nothing is said about what happens next. I mean, it doesn't answer, like, does Saul apologize? Does he make a new promise not to harm David? Does David use this opportunity to flee while Saul and his soldiers are preaching? None of this is known. But what David does know is that Saul broke his oath to God, not just to him, but to the Lord. And he knows he's not safe even if Saul makes a new promise. How confusing this must be for David. Why does my king, why does my father-in-law want to kill me? What did I do wrong? How did this happen? David certainly must have experienced disappointment before, but this chapter will reveal to us his broken heart. So chapter 20, we begin in verse 1. And David fled from Naoth in Ramah, and he came and said before Jonathan, what have I done? What is mine iniquity? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said unto him, God forbid, you shall not die. Behold, my father will do nothing, either great or small, but that he will show it to me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. But David swore moreover and said, your father certainly knows that I have found grace in your eyes. And he says, let not Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. David here, as soon as he gets away from the school of prophets where Saul and the soldiers are prophesying, he comes and he finds Jonathan and he confronts Jonathan with these questions. What have I done? What is my iniquity? What is my sin before your father that he would want to kill me? These are normal questions to ask when you've been wronged. And you know, there's nothing wrong with asking them, nothing wrong with having them go through your mind. What did I do? What have I done wrong? I don't know what I've done wrong. But it's what you do with the answers or lack of answers that make you right or wrong. And so if you've asked these questions, I want to encourage you, you're not alone. If you've experienced hurt or betrayal or a broken heart, you're not alone. Others have experienced that confusion. They've experienced that pain. And, and the good news is we read in Psalm 89, verses 1 through 13, in our scripture reading, but I want to pick it up in verse 14 and read through verse 18, because there is good news. In the first 13 verses, the psalmist, it calls him Ethan the Ezraite, he talks about the awesomeness of God. He talks about how there's no one like the Lord at all, and talks about why there's no one like the Lord. But when we get down to verse 14 of Psalm 89, he begins to explain how this now translates to his people. He says in verse 14 of Psalm 89, justice, righteousness, and judgment are the habitation or foundation of your throne. Lord, you never do anything wrong. You never are unfair. You always right every wrong. Mercy and truth shall go before your face. The word there, mercy, means his loving kindness, his loyal love towards us. It will go before his face. And so in verse 15, it says, blessed is the people that know the joyful sound. 
The joyful sound of what? His mercy, his words of love, and his words of truth. They shall walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance, in the light of the glory of his understanding, that he never makes any mistakes, that he never fails, that he's always just. And so verse 16 says, in your name shall they rejoice all the day, and in your righteousness shall they be exalted. For you are the glory of their strength, and in your favor our horn shall be exalted. Maybe others may not favor us. Others might look down on us. Others might betray us. But it's in his favor that's upon us that our horn, our strength is exalted. For the Lord is our defense, and the Holy One of Israel is our king. Even if your king fails you, betrays you, your king really hasn't because the Lord, for those who trust in him, those who are his people, he is our king. You know, Ezra 89, as I mentioned, Ezra 89, Psalm 89, as I mentioned earlier, is written by Ezra, Ethan the Ezraite. He was one of David's three worship leaders. He had a, another man named uh, He-Man, not the cartoon character, and another one named Asaph. And these three guys rotated in their jobs as David's worship leaders in the tabernacle. And the Bible says that later in Ethan's life, that the only wiser man than him in the kingdom was Solomon. Isn't that interesting? So this is someone we should listen to. If he's written a song with wisdom for us, we should listen to it. And when I read through this, you think, well, yeah, that's great. Everything's going good for this guy, though. I would encourage you, read the rest of the psalm. He doesn't write the psalm in good times. He writes this psalm in the latter part of David's reign when David is struggling with Absalom's desire to overthrow him when David is on the run when his life is in danger again. And so at the end of the song, in verse 46, he says this, How long, Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Shall your wrath burn like fire? He comes down in verse 49, he says, Lord, where are your former loving kindnesses which you swear unto David in your truth? And he's already declared that mercy, that love, that loving kindness, and his truth is always before God's face. But David, I mean, uh, Ethan asks the question, he goes, Lord, where is it now? It's hard to see it right now. So it is normal, even for a wise man, even for a godly man, a godly person to have these questions, to have these thoughts. And what I love about this song and what makes it so beautiful is because while he ends with anguished questions, he remembers God's faithfulness when David was betrayed by Saul. That's how he starts the song. Lord, I don't know what you're doing, and I can't see your love and your mercy right now, or your love and your truth right now, but I know you took care of my master before, my king before. I know you took care of me before, and I know you will this time too. He closes with the words, blessed be the Lord forevermore. Amen and amen. It is truth, and it will always be truth. That's what he says. It's truth, and it will always be truth, even though right now I don't know the answer to these questions. And so, if you're experiencing that brokenness right now, that brokenheartedness, verses 14 through 18, they are your future, even though you may have questions like verse 46 and verse 49. So ask God those questions. It's okay. But remember his promise and remember his past faithfulness, for they are keys to our future trusting in him. Well, in verse 2, back in 1 Samuel 20, David pours out these questions to Jonathan, and Jonathan's kind of shocked. He says to him, God forbid, which means never. Don't say that again. When, what do you mean? That your father, my father seeks your life. Don't say that again. That's not true. 
You see, Saul didn't tell Jonathan about his attempt to arrest David in Naoth. And Jonathan could not conceive that his father would break his oath to David. And so he, he thinks that it's got to be that demon again. It, this is not an actual, like, intent-minded. This is not a, a, an act of the will of his father. This is just his madness is upon him. Behold, he says, my father will do nothing, either great or small, but that he will show it to me. He doesn't make any choices unless he tells me about it. And why should my father hide this from me? In other words, he reminds David, he goes, you know, he, remember in the past, he didn't hide it from him when he wanted to kill you before, and we were able to work through all that. So why would he hide it from me this time? And so he just comes out and says, you will not die. It is not so. Whatever happened, David, it can be fixed. Let's reason through things here. This has happened before. You know my father's tormented. But David, he is not buying it this time. He says in verse 3, David swore moreover, which means he made an oath and he repeated it over and over and over again. We will find out what these words are that he repeats at the end of the verse. But first, David explains why he swears this oath. He says, your father certainly knows that I have found grace in your eyes. And he says, let not Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. He says, Jonathan, the word there, grieved, means injured, distressed, or in pain. He says, your father's kept this from you because he knows how close we are. And you're wrong, Jonathan. This can't be walked, worked out. I am a dead man walking. He says, as truly as the Lord lives, this is his oath that he keeps saying over and over again, as truly as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, as sure as God's alive and you're standing in front of me right now alive, he says, there is but a step between me and death. Now that phrase, step between, is a very pictorial word in the Hebrew because it's the picture of someone who has run out of room and he's standing in front of a cliff and there is no other place to step. The very next step will take you over the cliff. And that is all David sees right now. He has, I have no options. I am out of options. I have nowhere to go. Any step I take is going to cause me to plunge off the edge of the cliff. And David is emotionally shaken up. And despite Jonathan's calming assurances, he is still terrified. And so Jonathan attempts to graciously reason with him again. In verse 4, Jonathan says to David, whatever your soul desires, I will even do it for you. Literally, it means, what does your heart ask of me? David, I understand you're not buying my, my reasoning, but I am on your side. What can I do to fix this? I'm your friend. I'm not against you. What can I do to fix this? And so in verse 5, David proposes a plan to ascertain the truth about Saul, since they can't agree he, he says, I got a plan then. And David said to Jonathan, verse 5, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I shall not fail to sit with the king at meat. But let me go that I may hide myself in the field until the third day at evening. And if your father at all miss me, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me that he might run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. And if he saith thus, that's okay, it's well. Well, then your servant shall have peace. But if he be very wroth then be sure that evil is determined by him. David first concocts a lie, hoping to get a response from Saul. He says when the new moon feast occurs, now uh, the new moon phase of the lunar cycle occurs every 29 and a half days. So we are on a 31-day calendar, I mean a, a, a different, sorry, we are on a, a calendar that changes every single month. So the new moon can be at 
sometimes it's not always on the first of the month in our calendar. In fact, it's all over the place in our calendar. But being on a 30-day calendar like the, the Jews were, and the fact that they started their months in the middle of our months, meant that Israel celebrated the new moon feast on the first of each month. In Numbers chapter 28, you can read about it in verses 11 through 15. It says, you take this day and you have a celebration. And so they would do that. Now, what's interesting is it's a sign of Israel's prosperity under Saul that they were able to celebrate a monthly festival for multiple days because we're going to see that this festival goes on at least for three days. So so things were going good in Israel at this point in time that they could do that. And and this proves that prosperity is not a guarantee of God's approval of my behavior. Now, David explains when we have this feast and it should... Uh, it should not fail that I'm supposed to be there to sit with the king at food. In other words, it's my duty. As a high-ranking member of Saul's court, uh, it should not fail that I should sit with the king to eat. Um, that's where I'm supposed to be. He says, but, he says, this is what I want you to do. Let me go, which means literally, instead of me being where I'm supposed to be, he says, I want to see how your father reacts to my absence, so can you give me official permission to be absent? That's what I want you to do, Jonathan. You give me official permission to be absent. Let me go that I might hide myself in the field even until the third day at evening. And he says, if your father miss, at all miss me, then say, tell him, well, David earnestly asked leave of me, my permission, and obviously Jonathan would say I gave it, that he might run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all of his family. Now, of course, this is a lie, and, and David was either too frightened to care or saw nothing wrong with lying for the purpose of staying alive, uh, the Bible does not give an opinion on David's actions here, so I will say nothing, except to say that I do think other solutions were possible without making up a story. In verse 7, he explains, this is what I'm looking for. This is David's plan. If he, Saul, say thus, well, it's well. The phrase there actually means it's a good thing. In other words, that for him to miss a, a work party, in essence, uh, for the purpose of celebrating something special with his family, that's a good thing. If Saul commends me for that, that decision. Well, then he says, your servant shall have peace. The word there, peace is that word shalom. And, and when we get later on in the chapter, we're going to talk about how deep this word of a meaning this word has. Uh, but for right now, he'll basically be saying, if he says, that's great. It's good for David to be with his family during this time. If he says that, then I, they, Jonathan, all's well, and I'll admit you are right. He says, but if he be very wroth, in other words, if he is angry to the point of losing his temper, he says, then you be sure that evil is determined by him. The phrase there, you be sure, means you must acknowledge, Jonathan. You must acknowledge that you're wrong and I'm a dead man because he has evil determined against me. The word evil there means the harmful plan. His plan to kill me, that it is determined. The word it means completed. His mind is made up. Now, this is interesting because David doesn't dismiss Jonathan's testimony completely, and yet he does not agree with it. And so he proposes this plan to figure out which one of them is correct because what they decide to do moving forward, his life is going to depend upon it. It is possible to be dear friends and disagree. It is. Christians should be the last who write someone off because of a disagreement. We should be the last people who do that. And if you think your issue is so important that you have a right to be mad or you have a right to break off that friendship with somebody, consider that David's life is literally on the line. 
There isn't a more important thing that you could disagree with someone on than that. And yet David proposes this way that they can work through this. Now, David also in verse 8 tells Jonathan that doing this plan will prove his loyalty. Therefore, verse 8, by doing this, you shall deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Notwithstanding, if there be in me iniquity, slay me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? The word there, deal kindly, means to perform, to do, to prove your loyal love. He says, you have entered into a covenant with me, Jonathan. We have said that we would have each other's back no matter what. You already said you've got my back, that you're my friend in this. If that's true, then you'll show it, you'll prove it by doing this. Now, David is not accusing Jonathan of being disloyal, nor is he asking Jonathan to prove his love because he doubts it. But David doesn't know who he can trust right now. He's been betrayed by his own father-in-law. He's been betrayed by the king that he has loyally served and has no understanding why his king would be angry with him. He is not sure what's true right now. And we see the fact that David still has hearts in the right place even though he's struggling by what he says at the end. Notwithstanding, despite David's terror, his core values remain. Notwithstanding, if there be iniquity in me. He says, if, there, if I have done wrong, then kill me yourself. Don't wait, don't wait to bring me to your father. Do the deed now. Why try to repair my relationship with your father if I intend him harm and you believe so? The word there, iniquity, means a wrongdoing that's worthy of punishment, a wrongdoing that makes someone guilty. He says, do the right, if that's the case with me, do the right thing and kill me now before I can harm the nation any further. And so I love this about David because even though they're having a, a disagreement, he's humble enough to say, maybe I have done something wrong. Maybe, maybe I, I, I am a problem to the nation David's humility shines here because he actually gives Jonathan permission to break his promise if he's a, really a threat to the king. I love that because the Bible tells us love doesn't rejoice in evil, nor does it support evil. David doesn't presume that just because he can't see the wrong he's done, that he hasn't done anything wrong. One of the hardest times you can be is when you're in a conversation with somebody and they're telling you this is wrong that has happened, and you're going, I don't think I did anything wrong. <laughs> Sometimes you just have to keep hearing it over and over again and then take it to the Lord. And there's been moments when, man, I was, I was, I had dug in and I was really, you know, standing my ground in a situation with somebody and then I go back to the Lord repeatedly because uh, I keep saying, Lord, uh, am I not seeing something? And there have been times when the Lord said, yeah, you have a thick skull. It takes me a while to get through to you sometimes. And then you realize and you go, wow, Lord, I there are things I could have done better with this. And the beautiful thing that takes place when you're constantly just asking the Lord to search your heart, examine your heart, and being humble before Him is that, you know, if there are things that are off, He will break through and He will show you. And then you can go make them right, right? Anybody awake? <laughs> well, verse 9. Jonathan reminds David of his past faithfulness. He says unto David, Jonathan said, far be it from you. In other words, he's saying, you know, Jonathan, I'm not doubting your loyalty, but this is the way you'll, you'll show me. I don't know who to trust right now. And Jonathan says, far be it from you. For if I knew certainly that evil were determined by my father to come unto you, then would I not tell it to you? He says, David, don't ever doubt my commitment. I will keep my promise to you. 
And he reminds David that he warned him the first time that Saul expressed a desire to kill him. If my father plans to kill you, he said nothing to me about it, David. And you know what? That was good enough for David. So now it's just a matter of logistics, verse 10. Then said David to Jonathan, well, who shall tell me? Or what if your father answer you roughly? (laughs) I love this because it shows David still shaken up. He's like, okay, all right, so you and me are okay? Yeah, we're okay. All right, we got a plan? Okay, we got a plan. But then what? What happens if things go bad? <laughs> I mean, you can tell that there's trust there. You can tell that there's still closeness there, even though this is a very stressful time in their friendship. And yet, you know, David's still, he's like, what do I do if he, what do I do if he does want to kill me, you know? How will I find out? What do I, how will I find out what's going on? They've got a plan, but what do we do if his worst fears prove true? And you know, when your heart is wretched like this, it is not good to be alone with your thoughts. Have you ever been in a place like this where you are just terrified, where you are worried about the future and you're alone? It's awful because when all you have is what your mind can conjure up, the mind, what do they say, you know? For a mind, like, like don't, the whole don't do drugs thing in the 80s, you know, don't do drugs, a mind's a terrible, th- horrible thing to waste, a terrible thing to waste. I don't know, anyway, something like that. Yeah, the mind is a terrible thing to waste, but it's also crazy sometimes. It, it can imagine awful things. It can go down paths that life would never, ever take us. And so I want to give you, I'm going to channel my Skip Heitzig now, for those of you who watched the conference. I'm going to share with you um, four ways that you can help someone who's, whose heart is broken, how Jonathan helps David here. Because it's very difficult to see beyond the ominous mountain that's planted itself right in front of you if you're the only one looking at it. So four ways that Jonathan helps David move forward. Look at verse 11. And Jonathan said unto David, come and let us go out into the field. And they went out both of them into the field. Number one, if you want to help somebody whose heart's been broken, do not leave them alone with their thoughts. Do not leave them alone with their thoughts. You know, when, I don't know if I've shared this story before. So, some of you guys have come to me for counsel with going through struggles with depression and and other types of things, and um, I will share with you oftentimes my own experiences with depression. I was was deeply depressed uh, in my mid-twenties, and through some bad decisions on my part, and then just life being difficult. Um, there was a period in my life when I just refused to get out of bed. And for three days, I didn't, didn't eat. Um, my wife was, Bev was pretty worried about me. And I uh, didn't come out of my room. Didn't really function. And the reason was because I wanted to die. And uh, I felt like I had wrecked and ruined my entire life. That decisions were made that could never be repaired, that could never, I could never come back from. And, uh, and I had the extra weight now. I had a child. I think Joel was maybe six months old, maybe three months old at the time, very young. And I was newly married, had a, married, had a beautiful wife. And, and I thought, well, now I've wrecked their lives too. And that mountain that was in front of me was so big, I couldn't see anything. And the folks who rescued me were two individuals who were coming to the church sporadically at that time, but they were connected with someone who helped me plant the church. And I don't know, I think Bev may have known before they were coming, but as far as I knew, they just showed up at the house. 
And at that point in time, you know, it was kind of one of those things where, well, I really don't want those people to see me like this. And I got out of bed, and we hung out, and we talked. And that was the first step of my recovery from depression. It was a long road, but that was the first step. I love what Jonathan tells David here. He says, come, let us go out into the field. Let's go for a walk. It's probably going to take more than a phone call or a text. But if you know someone who has a broken heart, go find them and take them somewhere. Go for a walk together. Get them moving. Never, ever underestimate the value of taking the next step and of helping someone do so. I remember I heard someone say once, what's the hardest step a man ever takes? And you hear some people answer that, they go, well, the first step. No, it's not. It's the next step. It's always the next step. Because it's the next step that you're terrified of. It's the next step that you're absolutely convinced is the horrible one. It's always the next step. And so if you know someone who's got a broken heart, go find them. Go bang on the door. <laughs> Tell them, you don't have to talk to me. You don't have to say anything. You don't have to answer my questions. But you do have to go for a walk with me. Because when you get out in the sun or the stars, you start to see that the world's not as small as you think. Your problem's not as big as you think. And you can actually take another step forward. The second thing that Jonathan does here with David is that he speaks truth to David through prayer. Look at verse 13, when they, or verse 12. When they get out into the field, it says that Jonathan says unto David, notice it says here, he says unto David, O Lord God of Israel. So he's praying, but he's talking to David. O Lord God of Israel. I'm not talking about preaching in prayer. That's not good. But he's talking to David through his prayer. O Lord God of Israel, when I have sounded my father about tomorrow, any time or the third day, and behold, if there be good toward David, and I then do not send you unto you and show it to you, the Lord do so and much more to Jonathan. But if it please my father to do the evil, then I will show it to you and send you on your way. He says here, Lord, I want to involve you in this conversation. I'm going to make a commitment to David here, but I want, I want you to be invited into this conversation. And through his prayer, he communicates his love to David. And he communicates that whatever happens, David is going to be okay. He says here, O Lord God of Israel, when I have sounded my father about tomorrow, any time or the third day, and behold, if, it be not, if there be good toward David, and I don't send it to him and show it, then the Lord do so and much more to Jonathan. He says, you know, I love this guy. If I, if I, if I mess up with him, then Lord, you deal with me. Because this guy's important to me. You deal with me. And if it please my father to do evil, then I will show it you and send you away. And I love what he says here, that you may go in peace. He says, Jonathan, he says, David, I'm talking to the Lord right now, but I'm also talking to you. Lord, show David. Let him understand that whatever happens, whatever the answer is, whether it's good or it's bad, he is going to be able to take the next step in peace. He's going to be okay. When we pray, it is so good to pray truth. It is so good to pray Scripture. 
Because it's not just a sense of us where we're saying that this is where we're going to stand. But sometimes the people you're praying with need to hear those truths. It's good to be reminded of truth. And it is good to invite the Lord into a situation and to invoke His truths. In Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 through 9, the writer of Hebrews closes out his chapter with some interesting thoughts. He says in Hebrews 13, verse 7, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith imitate, considering the end of their conduct. And what is the truth that they've spoken? Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Don't be carried about with diverse and strange doctrines, for it's a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with foods which have not profited them which have been occupied therein. He says there are all sorts of things you can get your mind on right now, but he says remember the truths that were spoken to you by your leaders, your spiritual leaders who have poured into you. Remember their conduct in their lives and, and that Jesus doesn't change. And cling to those things because it's good that the heart be established in grace. I'm so glad it was during that same time when I was struggling that uh, a dear friend of mine who was out of the state, he was at school, he had gone back to college and he came back for a visit and we went for a walk and poured out my heart to him. And I remember he would just pray scripture over me. He would, he would just He'd just lay his hands on me while I was sometimes weeping, sometimes frustrated, didn't, sometimes had no clue what to say. And he would just put his hand on me and he'd just, he just recite scripture and pray for me. You know, when you encounter someone who's got a broken heart, like Jonathan, you can speak truth to them as you pray for them. The third thing that David does to help, uh, Jonathan does to help David is he pronounces a blessing on him. Look at the end of chapter, or verse 13. He says, and the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Isn't that an interesting thing to say? I don't know if I'd want someone to pray that prayer over me because remember the Lord it took his anointing off Saul and he allowed the demon to come torment him? So what is Jonathan talking about here? I don't think he's talking about that. One of the things that uh, I've tried to communicate as we've been studying through this is that God never said that he, he wouldn't be with Saul anymore. He never said that he wouldn't, he wouldn't bless Saul's life anymore. What he told him was, he says, you can't be king anymore because you just won't listen. And he removed that anointing from Saul, the anointing to be the king. Saul, the reason he ended up in trouble is because he stubbornly tried to hold on to the kingdom instead of stepping down. So what Jonathan is saying is, listen, I'm not ignorant of my father's failings. I'm not ignorant of the fact that God pulled his anointing off my father. But he recognized that despite all that, God still offered Saul numerous opportunities to repent. He understood that God had never cast his father off entirely. And thus, as he's blessing David, he's not just blessing him with God's favor here, not just with God's anointing, but he's also blessing David with God's mercy. It is so cool that he says to David, David, I don't know what's going on between you and my dad. Maybe you did do something wrong. But in the same way that the Lord never gave up on my father and never will give up on my father, I'm trusting that he's never gonna give up on you. That is such an important truth, but there are so many blessings that we can speak into people's lives when their hearts are broken. Now, I wanna make something clear. We don't speak things into existence. We don't have the ability to make God do things. That's not what I'm saying here. 
but we can communicate our desire that God do good things for others. And I think, you know, one of the things I learned at the conference was it's important that we do that. It's important, important that we actually say blessings over people. You know, I think of when my, I don't, I, they're old, I don't do this anymore, I don't tuck them into bed anymore. And when they were little, I would always go to them in their bedroom, you know, I'd sit down on the side of the bed and, and I, would, I would pronounce blessings over them. I would say, the Lord bless you. He's gonna keep you. His face is gonna shine upon you. He loves you. Don't let anyone ever tell you otherwise. It's important to say those things to people because the opposite things are being said in their mind. The opposite things are being told them by the enemy. And so while we don't make God do things and we can't speak things into existence, this is one of the ways that we show love to someone, that we want God to do good things in their life. It's good for them to know that someone is there that wants good for them because I can tell you the enemy will tell them that no one out there wants good for them. Well, the fourth thing Jonathan does, this is just as important, is he calls David to obedience. It's important that when someone's heart is broken that you go and you do something with them. You don't, don't make them talk. If they don't want to talk, they don't have to. You tell them that. But it's important that they not be alone. You go do something with them. Go get them out. It's important that you speak truth to them as you pray for them. It's important that you bless them verbally where they can hear. But it's important that you call them to obedience. Look at what Jonathan says to David in verses 14 and 15. And you shall not only, while yet I live, show me the kindness of the Lord that I die not, but also you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off the enemies of David, every one from the face of the earth. I love, he says, David, you're gonna go in peace. That's, that's what I believe in God for right now. But as you do and we go our separate ways, you shall do the right thing. Why is he telling them this? Well, culture back then demanded that David take vengeance upon Saul by doing harm to Saul's family. You're gonna come at me like this? Then I have to come at you and all yours like this. It's just how things were done. If someone became king, you wiped out all the other, the other king's family members. Anyone that could have a claim to the throne, you wiped them out. If someone did you wrong, you were required, you were duty-bound to avenge your family member or, 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 you know, by, by uh, enacting it upon the person that did it to them. This was ingrained in that culture, so much so that God had to set up cities of refuge in the nation of Israel. He couldn't just come out and say, hey, that's bad, don't do that, because he knew they wouldn't listen. There are numerous civil laws that we see in the book of Deuteronomy that you read them and you kind of go, I don't get that, Lord. And the Lord explains. He goes, remember when Jesus, we talked about the, the law, uh, they came to him about divorce and remarriage. Came to Jesus about divorce and remarriage and he said, hey, you know, uh, you know is, is, it, is, is it okay to do that? And Jesus said to him, he goes, well, what did Moses tell you? He said, well, he said we could do this. And then he quoted the scripture. And what did Jesus say? Moses gave that to you because your hearts are hard, because you wouldn't do what he said. From the beginning, it was not so. And then he takes them all the way back to Genesis, the way God originally set it up. There are so many things that we find in the Old Testament that these civil laws, they're not moral laws. We don't go back to say, well, how should I handle things like revenge? Oh, oh we should do the city of refuge thing, you know? You know, if you can get home before I can kill you, you're safe. We would never say that. 
It's so funny how, how Christians sometimes, they, they pick different various things from the Old Testament and they decide, oh yeah, we're going we're gonna to latch onto that. That's a moral truth. And it's like, no, no, that's civil law. That's ceremonial law. Civil law and ceremonial law, they don't apply to us as Christians. God's moral law never changes. Never changes. That stays. Because it existed before the Ten Commandments were given. It existed before the law of Moses, the covenant with Israel was made. But the ceremonial and the civil laws of Moses, the Bible tells us they were shadows of things that were coming in the future. Things that Jesus was the substance of. And so we don't abide by those things. We live by what the Scriptures teach us. The New Testament confirms all those Old Testament moral commands. And they, are, they still hold true. But all the other things, we don't live by those things. You want to know about how you handle forgiveness and revenge? You go read Jesus. You want to know how to handle marriage or divorce or whatever? You go read Jesus. You go read Paul. It's not because that wasn't how God allowed them to do it back then. He did, but the reason was their hearts were hard. It's not how we're supposed to live. I remember I had a pastor once. He said, you know, we don't live by law. He goes, but anything less under grace would be a disgrace. And what he meant by that was is, those were laws that were given that were actually lesser, not greater, because the idea was is they were because of hard hearts. Jesus calls us to a higher level. That's the whole Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, and then he goes, but I say to you. He calls us to a higher level, not a lower level. That's why anyone would say, oh, grace is just a license to sin. You're not reading your Bible. You know, grace, you know, we don't want to get involved in legalism ever, but grace is never a license to sin. And so even to someone who's hurting, you have to call them to obedience. And so he tells David, you shall not do what the culture says to do, but he says, you shall not cut off your kindness from my house. He says, and you shall not only while yet I live show me the kindness of the Lord that I do not die. You're not gonna take revenge on me, but you shall also not cut off your kindness from my house, my whole family, forever. No, not even when the Lord has cut off the enemies of David, everyone, from the face of the earth. If my father does mean you harm, and you too end up as enemies, David, you must not count me or any of my family as your enemy too. You need to treat me like the Lord treats us. Kindness. That's that word chesed in the Hebrew. It's the Hebrew equivalent of agape. God's unconditional devotion to us, his loyal love, his loving kindness. We read that word more often in the New Testament. Mercy in the Old Testament. Mercy is another way it's translated in the Old Testament. He says, David, you've asked me to live out my love for you, and now I'm reminding you to do the same. When a person is hurting, do not shy from exhorting them to obedience. One of the things I need most when I'm hurting is a reminder to do the right thing. Frequently when I have someone in front of me whose heart is shattered and they are frustrated and they don't know what to do, as we console them, as I, I try to minister to them, I try to be with them, I try to do all the things I mentioned here, the very last thing I make sure I do is I say, listen, you have an opportunity in front of you now to make good choices when everything in the world, everything in your system is telling you not to. My encouragement to you is make good choices. Follow the Lord through this. A big struggle when your heart is broken is seeing to the time beyond the heartbreaking situation. If you've ever been there, you understand that. A big struggle when your heart is broken is seeing to the time beyond the heartbreaking situation. 
But that time, that day will come. And what kind of person I am on the other side of the heartbreaking depends on how I walk through the heartbreaking. And one of the worst things that you can do for a friend who is hurting is to let them wallow in sinful responses. I know you're hurting, and I know you don't want to hear about forgiveness right now, but have you forgiven them? Have you made the decision to forgive them? I'm not telling you if you feel like you want to forgive them, but have you made the decision to forgive them? It's important. You know, when I don't think we're going to get to the end of the chapter. Oh, well. It's kind of the norm. When Jacob was heartbroken after his son's return from Egypt without Simeon, you remember that? Remember they go down to get grain, and Joseph's there, but he doesn't reveal himself to him, and he keeps Simeon behind, right? And he tells him, if you come back, don't come back without your brother Benjamin, because I need to make sure you're not spies. Make sure you're not lying to me. When the boys come back without Simeon and with this news to Jacob, he is shattered. He's like, Joseph is dead. Simeon's gone. We're never getting him back. And now you want me to send Benjamin? He did not respond correctly. In Genesis 42, 36, one of my favorite lines in all the Bible, he goes, everything's against me. <laughs> Even the Lord is what he's thinking. Everything's against me in Psalm 42, or Genesis 42, 36. All these things are against me. And then in Genesis 43, 6, and Israel said, why did you deal so ill with me that you told him you had a brother? And when Judah responds to his father, to his un ungodly responses, he doesn't fail to bring up the point that none of them would be in this situation if Jacob had responded better to this difficult news. After he tells Jacob, he says, Dad, I will be surety for Benjamin. I will make sure he's safe. In verse 10, he tells him, for if we had not lingered, surely now we would have returned the second time. The reason that we're gonna die from no food is because, Dad, you should have made this decision earlier. It's time to make a good decision. You've been making bad ones. It's time to make a good one. And Jacob he wakes up after that, and he says, all right, go. If I'm deprived, I'm deprived. We need to eat. Now, these things in 1 Samuel 20 that Jonathan does, they help David take a step forward despite this awful situation. In verse 16, it says, so Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, let the Lord even require it at the hand of David's enemies. And Jonathan caused David to swear again because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. And so the two reaffirm their commitment to one another and to future harmony between their families, whatever happens between Saul and David. And you know, the basis of their friendship is the basis of every true friendship, selfless love. He loved him as he loved his own soul. I don't know about you, but I don't naturally put others before myself. It's not like, you know, I don't wake up and just say, ah, who can I give my life away for today? I think to myself, oh, I need a shower, you know? I'm hungry, you know, I'm tired. I'd like another 30 minutes. Can I take another 30 minutes, Lord? No, okay. I, I don't tend to wake up and go, how can I be a blessing to my bride and my kids? 
My natural inclination, and I would dare say most of our natural inclination, is to think of ourselves. Preferring others above ourselves requires a choice. It requires a choice like the one that Jesus made in regards to us. For in Philippians chapter 2, and I'm going to leave you with this tonight because I think we're out of time. In Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. It says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. That's kind of how the night started for, the day started for Jonathan and David, right? I mean, David's going, what's going on? Why do you dad want to kill me? Dad, my dad want to kill you? No, no, no. What are you talking about? Don't say that anymore. No, he is going to kill me. I know it. And that's how kind of the, the, the day starts off or the meeting starts off. And by the end, they've agreed that they're going to move forward with that same commitment to one another, a recommitment of their friendship. Started with strife. Let nothing be done, though, he says, through strife or vainglory. But in contrast to that, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then, of course, it gives the great theological statement there of how Jesus did not consider all the privileges of deity something to be held on to at all costs. That was something he was willing to lay down for us. He considered us to be more valuable than holding on to all the privileges of deity. That the incarnation, him becoming a man to rescue us, was of greater value to him, preferring others above himself. Well, that's the mind that he calls us to have. And that's the only way that we can, in lowliness of mind, esteem others better than ourselves. To look not on our own things, but every man to look on the things of others. So the idea still goes back to, we love him because he first loved us. And we love others because we love him. Amen? Let's all stand. Oh, Lord, you said you've chosen the foolishness of preaching. So here we are, trusting that you have by your spirit ministered to us and that now we have a need to respond. Lord, maybe there's someone in our lives who we know their heart's broken right now. We don't know how to help. Lord, remind us what Jonathan did and give us the courage to live it out because maybe it will take a time investment. Maybe it will take going for a walk when we hadn't planned on that, going to grab some coffee when we didn't plan for that. Maybe it just means being quiet and speaking truths over them or speaking blessings to them. Maybe it means, Lord, saying something that we know might not be easy to hear as we call them to obedience. But Lord, fill us with your spirit that whatever it is, we might be able to do that. Lord, that we would definitely be different than the world. 
who tends to cast aside the brokenhearted. Thank you, Lord, you didn't cast us aside. Thank you that you saw us in our helpless state, that you came and you met us, you walked with us in this world. Lord, that you gave us insight as you prayed out loud that we might hear those prayers, that you blessed us, and Lord, that you spoke hard truths that weren't easy to hear. You are truly the friend who sticks closer than a brother, and we are so grateful for you. Bless all my brothers and sisters tonight, especially those who have a broken heart, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.